You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, before we get started today, we wanted to tell you about our next class called The Bible is Not a Sex Book. I thought maybe it was. Yeah, I mean, you're blowing my mind right now. I know. The Bible is Not a Sex Book, a survey of the Bible's diverse and sometimes questionable sexual ethics and where we go from here. Wow. Well, it's going to be taught by our nerd in residence, Anna Segus Beal, and it's happening live for one night only on April 25th. Put it in your calendars, April 25th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. But if you can't make it live, don't worry. You'll still get the recording to watch later, so go ahead and sign up. And as is always the case, this class is pay what you can, that is until it's over, and then it costs $25 for the recording. And for more information and to sign up, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash sexbook, that's one word. And if the internet blocks that URL, blame the marketing department. (laughs) And if you want access to all of our classes, maybe this is a safer way to get there. If you want access to all of our classes and ad-free podcast episodes, you can become a member of our community, the Society of Normal People for just $12 a month. You can go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join if you want to learn more about that. Welcome to this episode of Faith for Normal People. Today, we're talking about why we need a spiritual revolution. Yeah, and we have as our guests, like we are beyond, beyond honored to be spending today's episode with Rain Wilson and talking about his newest book, Soul Boom, and why we need a spiritual revolution, right? right? Rain probably doesn't need an introduction, but for those of you who live under a rock, Rain is a three-time Emmy-nominated actor best known for his role as Dwight Schrute on NBC's The Office. And besides his many other roles on stage and screen, he's actually the co-founder of a media company, Soul Pancake, and host of Rain Wilson and the Geography of Bliss on Peacock. And I've actually really liked a lot of the stuff that Soul Pancake has put out. Right. And he's also the author of The Bassoon King, My Life and Art, Faith and Idiocy, great title, as well as the co-author of Soul Pancake, Chew on Life's Big Questions, which is a New York Times bestseller. And don't forget to stay tuned for Quiet Time at the end of the episode, where we'll reflect on this episode with Rain and see how uh, we We'll maybe carry this out or how that episode plays out in our own experiences of belief. All righty, let's dive in. We need to have a spiritual revolution. It's not naive and it's not kumbaya, hippy-dippy. It's if we want to save humanity, if we want humanity to blossom, if we want the kingdom of God on earth, we need to have a spiritual revolution. You have to keep hope alive. You have to keep your heart open and you have to fight all the time, but you have to know that if you become cynical, they win. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code NORMALPEOPLE, that's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Rain, welcome to our little podcast here. It's so good to have you. It is a sincere pleasure to be on your pod. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Well, listen, we want to talk about spiritual revolutions, and maybe let's start by backing up a step and talking about how you understand just spirituality. What does that mean to you? Well, that's a great question, and in my new book, which I know we'll be referencing, I actually- (laughs) That's a record for somebody plugging a book on the podcast. (laughs) Seven seconds into the podcast. (laughs) In my new book, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution by Rain Wilson, I dig into that right at the get-go because I think it's really important to define terms. These 
And I know we're going to talk about God a little bit later on, but it's so important to define what we mean when we say these things, because they mean so many different things to so many different people. And spirituality to some people means something involving ghosts and, you know, the paranormal, really, because it has to do with the world of spirits. To a lot of folk, spirituality essentially just means religion. There's not anything separate from religion and spirituality. And I guess when I define spirituality, I'm thinking about the non-material part of being a human being. So if we are, as Père de Teilhard de Chardin says, you know, spiritual beings having a human experience, then it is our spiritual beingness that has to do with spirituality. You can call it the soul. It's our eternal essence. It's that little spark, that little nugget of God, of the divine that's within each of us that we carry, you know, in our 80 or 90 year trip in our bodies. And then we carry beyond time and space for an infinity beyond when our bodies fall away. So, what is spiritual about us is also what is divine, and it is an emulation, I believe, of God, of the divine. That one way that I talk about it in the book, and I define it as well, it has to do with spiritual virtues. So, God, as we know, God is unknowable, basically. So, that's why we have great spiritual teachers like Jesus to show us a hint, a sneak peek of God, as it were. But there's so many when you think of the qualities of God, you think of grace, right? Think of love, compassion. You think of honesty, of grandeur, of nobility, of, you know, the best aspects of being a human being. So the best aspects of being a human being, I would call spiritual virtues. And those virtues are qualities of the divine that we all have within us and that we all seek to nurture and grow and to thrive over the course of our lives. So that then, whenever you talk of spiritual revolution, is that talking about really cultivating these spiritual virtues in our communities of faith and in us individually, or do you what what else might fall into that category of a spiritual revolution? Well, you're cutting right to the chase now, aren't you? <laughs> um, you know, I will say that, and forgive me for referencing the book so much. I know, I know, we jest and it's all in fun, but truly, like, kind of. This book, for me, I spent three and a half years writing it over the whole pandemic, and it has everything in it that I've ever kind of thought or expressed or mulled over. And I'm so glad about that because I feel like, oh, if I'm hit by a bus, in case anyone cares what that guy who played Dwight on The Office thinks, (laughs) you know, it's all laid out here. But I guess in terms of what a spiritual revolution is, is and again, sorry, going back to the book, in my one of the first chapters, I talk about two of my favorite TV shows from the 1970s, Kung Fu and Star Trek. So Kung Fu, for people that don't know, because it was only around three or four seasons, is about Kwai Cheng Kane, a Shaolin monk who gets kicked out of his monastery and comes to the United States when there's a tremendous amount of racism against the Chinese. It's during the cowboy days, during the building of the railroad days, and he's on a quest for his brother or his half-brother through the Old West. And I view it as this kind of spiritual metaphor for walking a spiritual path, because he brings this incredible Eastern wisdom and perspective and holiness to his interactions with these racist cowboys and everyone that he's meeting along the way. And and he kicks their butt a few times too, right? At least three or four times a show, there's a major ass whooping. Yes. Of Kwai Which is Chang why King. I watched it. That I didn't, I was a kid that no spirituality just. And, and weren't we, we were so bored. Weren't we in the seventies? Like it's such a slow show and you're just waiting, <laughs> <laughs> you're waiting for him to kick someone in the face. All right, and saying, oh my on. God. These endless discussions. The philosophy. Yeah, exactly. But Kung Fu is the um, a reflection of our personal kind of inner spiritual journey. We're all Kwai Cheng Kane. We are all on a spiritual path in a challenging world, in a world that is materialistic and competitive and aggressive, and where people can be mean and selfish and racist and difficult. And we seek to bring our wisdom and our perspective as we walk this path and to further 
right wrongs and fight injustice, but also learn and grow. So that's one path. And then I talk a lot about Star Trek throughout the book because really just cutting to the chase about what a spiritual revolution is, it's Star Trek. Because yes, Gene Roddenberry was an atheist or an agnostic, and the religion is never mentioned in the series. But when you look at it, when humanity has solved its problems at home, what is it then able to do? It's able to go out into outer space and to try and seek out strange new worlds and new civilizations, right? But at home, there's no more racism. The first interracial kiss in human history was between uh, Kirk and Uhuru, and there's no income inequality, and there's only kind of a democratic justice. And in fact, when you go to Star Trek The Next Generation, there's no money, and there's no even disagreements anymore. So you're talking about building the kingdom of God on earth, like the kingdom of God on earth, in a way, has been built in the world of Star Trek, so that humanity can arise and thrive and spread the peace throughout the universe. So the spiritual revolution goes in two parts. It's um, as a member of the Baha'i faith, it's what we call a twofold moral path, our, our twofold moral purpose, rather, is to seek to become better human beings, to grow our virtues, and also to seek to make the world a better place, a more harmonious place, a more unified place, a more loving place. And we can do that when I say the world, what does that mean? Like, am I going to go affect 7 billion people? No, we work in our families. We start with ourselves. We go with our families. Then we go with our communities. Then we go with our churches. We go with our localities and we spread it from there. But that's also part of our divine spiritual imperative is to seek to emulate what Jesus actually did in his life as well, what the Buddha did in his life, which was to build community and to create peace, compassion, and increased love everywhere we go. I want to maybe dig in a little bit within that and maybe ask you a personal question in your own life, because you know, you're setting these up. I, I think of it even within Kung Fu, there is the Eastern wisdom, but also fighting racism. And then within this Kung Fu and Star Trek twofold path, there's this debate between these two schools of thought within the Christian tradition, which we would call like contemplative and activist, right? Kind of this, uh, the inner piece of the individual and the outer piece in our societies and communities. And you mentioned in your book, you had this phrase, you said, what good is a spiritual path that only enriches our own inner peace while hundreds of millions go hungry? And conversely, how do we sustainably serve those millions if our hearts are hard, empty, and cold filled with selfish ego and materialist motives. So sometimes these are pitted against each other. This kind of the life of the contemplative and the life of the activist aren't seen as going hand in hand. And I wonder sometimes if it's just a lack of time and energy and resource. It's some people are, you know, it's like, well, I don't have time to cultivate both of these things. And I just wonder how you've danced within those two. And if you've ever felt that as a struggle or you lean one way or the other, or how do you balance that twofold path of the inner life and then kind of the outer justice? Wow, I love that question, and I love this conversation so much. And to me, this conversation right now that we're having is the most important conversation for people of faith to be having. And it really, really touches my heart. So thank you very much for bringing it up. I think about, and I know you guys are big fans of Richard Rohr, but I think about his, just the name of his little pad there in uh, New Mexico, the Center for Action and Contemplation, that there's a false dichotomy that is often created, that it's kind of either or, it's both and, and there's a dance between the two. It's like the yin and the yang symbol, where we see, you know, one energy is contemplative and internal, and the other energy is external and, and moves into action, and we need both to kind of work. I think of another great spiritual leader, Thich Nhat Hanh, from the Buddhist tradition, and his monks at uh, Plum Village Sanctuary, and his work is often about, uh, and he was very much a social activist and started uh, protesting the Vietnam War and actually came from Vietnam to the United States to kind of talk about what was happening on the ground in Vietnam, but yet with such grace, love, forgiveness, and compassion 
uh, wherever he went. So for me, you know, what it boils down to is what is God's will for me? And then how do I determine what God's will for me is? And that's always a tricky one. You know, we go to the Bible, we go to the holy books and traditions of the world to try and understand what God wants from us. And we learn that in parables and similes and poetry. And we learn it too in watching what Jesus did, you know, and Jesus serving the poor and washing the feet of prostitutes and spreading love and building community and reminding people of their mortality, reminding them of the glory of the Father. You know, we see that in his actions. So that's one way to steer us. But, you know, for me, I'll just get real personal. Like for Rain Wilson, what does this mean? Well, you know, I've been on a long, hard, difficult, spiritual struggle and path throughout my life. And part of it is I kind of realized early on, like, we look at what attributes that God gave us, you know, what what gifts did God give me, this peculiar-looking comedic actor? And, you know, the ability to make people laugh, to entertain, to play characters, to play weirdo characters and quirky characters is part of, you know, like it or not, maybe I would have preferred to be given the gifts of a brain surgeon or an astrophysicist or a pilot or something, but I didn't, I wasn't. I was the cut up in school and I could do funny voices and play weird characters. And so I really tried to incorporate my work as an actor into my spiritual path to say, hey, these are the talents and faculties and tools and abilities that God gave me. So bring them forth, you know, and see what happens. And fortunately, I was a part of a great TV show that reached a lot of people and brought a lot of laughter to to millions of folks. And I've been, I was so lucky to be a part of that. And part of my spiritual path is direct service. I try and be of service in my family. My wife and I have a nonprofit in Haiti. We try and educate and serve some very, very poor and destitute young women and girls in the reaches of Haiti in our work. But, you know, I also try and be of service by having these kind of conversations because this is one of the things that's really important is like, let's have the deep probing conversations about what it really means to be a human being. Again, because to be a human being is to be a spiritual being. So let's talk about what that means. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you, for service and for leadership. 
Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Backing up a little bit, talking about God, there's a little bit of a paradox I think we all have to grapple with, and that is the God is unknowable, and yet seeking a spiritual existence which somehow connects with this God. And I think this is the struggle of any faith. How do you do that? But I'm interested in just in your own thinking, Rain, about what do you mean by God is unknowable? Yeah, well, that's the deepest possible topic, and uh, we could spend five hours talking just about that. But I will say that through all the spiritual traditions, certainly in the Quran, certainly in the concept of a Brahman and in Hinduism and in the Bible, we perceive God as unknowable in the fact that if the definition of God is some kind of creative consciousness that is beyond time and space that has made this incredible physical universe that we live in that is almost unknowable in and of itself and filled chock full of mysteries. And then think about perhaps infinite other universes, infinite other universes beyond this physical universe then we're talking about a, and I don't even want to say an entity, I want a, a force that is so far beyond our comprehension. Pete Holmes always talks about it as being like a dog trying to understand the internet, but it's even, it's even greater than that. And so what do we do? We get glimpses, like my uncle, Dr. Rhett Diesner from Idaho, he studies beauty and he's a moral psychologist. He went to Harvard and he studies beauty and moral beauty and the beauty's effects on people's behavior. And, you know, beauty is one way we get to know God, but we just get these glimpses, right? We talked about spiritual virtues. So that's one glimpse, compassion, love, kindness, humility. That's a glimpse of the divine. Beauty itself is a glimpse of the divine. And I talk in the book a lot about reconceptualizing God as something away from, as uh, David Bentley Hart would say, something demiurgic, like a, a demiurge, like a, a god who sits on a cloud and has a bunch of superpowers, almost like a Marvel character, but away from an entity being god and a conceptual god that we think, you know, like the Bible says and like the hippies said, God is love, then if we conceive of God more as like love itself rather than a guy who's doing things and kind of like Santa Claus on a, watching us, if we're naughty or nice, then that opens up that possibility. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's- No, that's, yeah. And Hart also says, you know, that God is not a being, right? And this is part of the traditions of all the great religions. God is being, or the ground of being, that through which all things exist. So you can't really, like, you can't even wrap your head around that. And that's pretty basic to what the nature of God is. So we're all in the same boat here of fumbling around trying to understand the nature of, of God, and yet seeking God and trying to live in ways that are in harmony with God. And I think that's a paradox, at least for me it is, but it's a good one. It's, it's one I can wake up every morning and, and live into. So in the Baha'i faith, God is described as the unknowable essence, which very much parallels the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the Quran, that God is the unknowable essence. And at the same time, as in the Baha'i faith, we say a prayer every day, which is, I bear witness, O my God, that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. So, wait a second. We are created to know God? We're created to know the unknowable? That doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? <laughs> and yet that paradox, that mystery is so profound and so beautiful. And it's something, uh, and why Baha'is really try and work with people of all faiths and just cultivate 
a knowledge of all of the beautiful divine paths that have emerged throughout divine history, uh, human history, including the ones of the indigenous people, that God in the Lakota tradition is called Wankantanka, the great mystery. God is called the great mystery. <laughs> and that helps me understand God. Like, oh, I don't know much about beings who are looking down on me. Like, was I short with my son or was I mean to my wife or did I cheat on my taxes and is God watching me and making me feel bad and am I going to heaven or hell or something like that? Like, I don't know about any of that, but I do know that there's a beautiful dance between the great mystery of like a seeking to know the unknowable. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can turn it a little bit back down to earth as you were kind of were there. You mentioned that Native American spirituality, you talk about it, you know, books like Black Elk Speaks and God is Red, which are both wonderful books were kind of life-changing for you. And part of that, I'm, I'm Choctaw, so I'm, I'm very interested in kind of how this touches here. You talked about Black Elk saying everything is sacred and how that had an impact on you. So my question is, like, how did that change how you showed up in the world to, you know, we had this in the same sense that God being distant and God being so, so close has an impact, I think, on how we see the world and like spaces as sacred versus secular or how, and again, in the Christian tradition, there's this sense of a divide between the sacred and secular. And so I'm curious, you know, I, I really appreciated you mentioning like a stone bench in your backyard and that becoming like a sacred space for you. But how do you think about the sacred in how you practice your faith? Yes. Yeah, so I talk in the book about this experience I had taking a Baha'i pilgrimage to the Baha'i Holy Land in Haifa, Israel. And it's a holy land for the Baha'is for a number of different reasons. One is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, spent his last 20 years there and died there and is buried there. So it is a very sacred spot for that reason. It's also, and there's a tremendous amount of Baha'i kind of history from that area and that place in the years thereafter. And also it's the Baha'i Administrative World Administrative Center is in that area as well. So there's all these reasons why these this particular locale in and around Haifa and Akko, Israel, is very sacred. And I talk about how when I went on that pilgrimage and I had a tangible experience of the sacred, where I'm like, oh, here's where this happened, and here's where Baha'u'llah was imprisoned for 10 years in this one-room cell, and here's trees that he planted, you know, because Paola didn't live that that long ago. And here's where he was buried. And, you know, here's the beautiful gardens. And, you know, everyone's coming with reverence and sincerity. And I talk about how missing that is in the modern world. And, and I really just pose these questions because I don't have any answers. Like, how do we find, I would pose it to the listenership and I would pose it to the two of you. Like, how do we find the sacred in our daily life, you know? If I go down the hill from my, I have a lovely home, thank God, hashtag blessed, with lots of trees, and then if I go down the hill to the mini mall, to the Starbucks that I go to almost every morning, like jostle for a parking spot, it's always really hard, it's super busy, and go in and get my order, and they get my order wrong, or what have you, like, is that sacred too? How do we find the sacred or sacred spaces? Is every place sacred? You know, is a is an ATM on a busy intersection sacred and an auto parts store sacred? Or is it something that we make sacred? You know, I have a little prayer and meditation bench outside my door here that I try and meditate and pray daily. And that is a sacred space for me. Nature is sacred to me. You can certainly, again, we talked about touching the divine. We can certainly touch the divine in nature, but humanity has lost its sense of the sacred. And it used to be for the Christians that sacred was kind of the church only. It was like you lived in this village and it was crappy and profane was the word that was non-sacred. And then the church itself is sacred and what's in the church and what's represented by the church and everything else is profane. And um, Mercia... Eliade, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, wrote that book, The Sacred and the Profane, which is very thick and difficult to get through, but he makes some really good points in it. And I don't have any answers around that, but it's something we need to seek to find in our lives. 
to touch in the sacred. And the Native American traditions, all of them, are so beautiful because there is a sacredness in every act, and there's a sacredness in every leaf, and every stone, and every tree, and every sunrise, and every mountain, and in the wind. And the Navajo say, I walk with beauty, beauty in front of me, beauty on my left, beauty on my right, beauty behind me. You know, I walk in beauty. And that's that kind of the highest form of prayer is walking in beauty, right? And we don't walk in beauty <laughs> in modern America very much. How can we learn more and be more humble about learning spirituality from the fathers and stewards of this land, the Native Americans and their spiritual traditions? Yeah. So, but I'm open. What do you guys think? I don't have any answers. I mean, one thing I was thinking is, you know, there does seem to be, because even when, you know, you're talking about your park bench, and as I was reading through the book, I felt similar to this polarity uh, that we talked about earlier between this activism and contemplation, that this subjective and objective polarity, where in some ways it seems like we often think of sacred things being sacred, like objectively on our own, like this unique way of being sacred. Like you said, the church is sacred in definition to the profane, like it's set apart from it. And just thinking of, of kind of Native American spirituality, I think there's a framework that everything is spiritual and everything is enchanted, but then that then allows for this subjectivity where as the Choctaw, we have these sacred mounds that they were locally, they were sacred to us as a people in a unique way but it wasn't different from everything is sacred to begin with. And that is actually what allowed for these local areas to be sacred. So in the same sense, I was thinking of your park bench of like to enchant everything is actually, it's not opposed to having unique, special, sacred places. It actually is the groundwork for having unique, special places. So it's not, you know, there's no opposition to saying everything is sacred and saying your park bench is sacred to you. And I think that kind of how can we re-enchant things overall, but then ask all of us to take responsibility for our work to re-enchant our own kind of local spaces and places that we're at. And mm. what Jared just described, that sounds like a spiritual revolution to me, mm. right? Mm. So, I mean, maybe tying into what Jared is just saying here to let's get at that nature of what does the spiritual revolution look like? I think I'm, I'm getting a sense from you about why we need it, because we've lost sense of, you know, Jared says, uh, the enchantedness of things and the holiness of things. But why do we need a spiritual revolution? Like, who cares? Um, because we're destroying ourselves, and uh, we're destroying the planet, and we're destroying our species, and we're destroying things for our great-great-grandchildren. So we need to have a spiritual revolution. It's not a pie in the sky. It's not airy fairy. It's not naive. And it's not like kumbaya hippy dippy. It's if we want to save humanity, if we want humanity to blossom like in Star Trek, and I think we can even do better than Star Trek, frankly, but if we want the kingdom of God on earth, we need to have a spiritual revolution. Because one of the things I talk about late in the book, I talk a lot about partisan politics, because to me, partisan politics, and not to pick out any particular party at all, partisan politics and the toxicity that it creates is literally killing us. It's ripping us apart. It's destroying the fabric of our society. Because when you look at, when you start to peel the onion of partisan politics, it's a quest for power. It's, I'm good and the other side is evil. Um, the other side wants to destroy us, and my side wants to save us. And it brings out the very worst in humanity. It's competitiveness, it's aggressiveness, it's gotten venal, it's insulting, it's backroom deals and backstabbing and gossip, and it's just the very, very worst of what human beings are. And yet we put all our eggs in that basket, and we we only are looking for a better candidate. You know, people are like, oh, we need another Reagan or, oh, we need another Obama or we need another JFK or whatever it is, as opposed to, wait a minute, the system is corrupt to its core. And not only is the political system corrupt to its core, it's the whole materialistic capitalist consumerist system is corrupt to its core. If the earth is something to simply extract value out of and to dump 
rubbish onto, then there's nothing sacred about the earth, but that's how we're treating it. And immediately, you know, there might be a knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, he's talking about communism or socialism or something like that. And it's like, no, I'm not. I'm just saying that we don't have a system that has worked yet. We literally don't. We have to reinvent a new system, and that new system needs to be based on spiritual principles, which have to do with service, compassion, kindness, a service to one another, humility, honesty, seeking the divine in each other, recognizing that we're all part of one human family. And this sounds like hippy-dippy 1969 BS, but we're headed for a precipice, and we're not going to solve these big issues unless we re-explore the spiritual foundation. Well, well, the system that causes the problem is not the answer to the problem. Yeah. Right? So you, mm-hmm. you need a whole new system that doesn't have the myth of consumerism, for example, running the yeah. agenda, which is a very deep... Otherwise, it's just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the 60s and, you know, maybe some of the language is reminiscent of that. And I'm even just thinking of growing up in a religious tradition where that was seen as like anti-religious, it's so weird saying it now, like (laughs) anti-religious rhetoric of, it was almost looked down on of this, like love conquers all, we're all just going to get along and sing, like kind of the hippy dippy was the language of it. But that was coming from like a a religious tradition saying that. I'm kind of thinking of, and maybe we can't answer this, but how do we bring that back in a way that people can see the power in it now rather than again, like you're saying, like the tendency to dismiss it as like hippy dippy. What's a way that we can talk about this that reinvigorates our imaginations for the future and not just looking back for ways we can dismiss it from the past. You know, brother, you're, you're singing my song, baby. I don't know exactly. I'm open to ideas. I can tell you a couple of things that I have pondered and written about. One is, um, at the end of the book, I have the seven pillars of a spiritual revolution. And one of those sections is to foster joy and squash cynicism. And I think, I'll tell you a little story. So there's this amazing acting teacher, director, provocateur named Andre Gregory. And he's the focus of the movie, My Dinner with Andre, which is a classic 70s movie of two people having a dinner and having this incredible conversation, mind-blowing conversation. So I got to study with Andre Gregory, and he's like 94 right now. And he would have meetings with all of his acting students. So I had a meeting with him when we had tea, and he said, so how how are you? What's going on? And, and I was like, you know, Andre, I'm just, I'm so... I'm tired. I, I've, I'm cynical. I don't think it can come to any good. I don't know why we do theater and why acting matters. And I just feel like the world's going to shit. And he literally grabbed my arm hard and he looked in my eyes and he was like, don't do it. Don't succumb to cynicism. If you become cynical, they win. Mm. You have to keep hope alive. You have to keep your heart open and you have to fight all the time, but you have to know that if you become cynical, they win. And he's pointing out the window. I don't know who the they is, but you know, the forces of crass materialism and cynicism and militarism and those worst qualities of humanity win if we all get cynical. So, you know, what do we do to kind of keep that spirit? I mean, the hippies were really onto something, you know, and it's when a ton of people became members of the Baha'i faith, and and a ton of people reinvigorated Christianity, hello, you know, in the late 60s and throughout the 70s, and tried to, you know, Jesus Christ superstar, and tried to reinvigorate what it meant to be a Christian. So, a lot of good came out of it, and they made a ton of mistakes with the sex and the drugs, and it ultimately became just a narcissistic exercise. But creating joy and keeping hope alive and quashing cynicism and staying I don't want to say optimistic's not quite the right word, but stay, but working toward the light, to bringing light to the world, that's what we all have to do. I mean, that's, that's a key component. I appreciate that. Maybe we can drill down just another level, because I think a lot of people are going to resonate with that vision of hope and joy and avoiding cynicism. And I think actually a lot of our listeners are probably coming from a space where they've been cynical 
about their past religious traditions and are now looking for this hope and this way to foster joy. Do you have some practical, maybe from your own life, like how did you, when Andre says, don't give in, were there practices or practical things that helped you foster this joy or move to this place of, of hope and these, you know, moral paths and moral purposes that you see? Well, I wish I had more answers. I don't, I don't have answers. I only have more questions. But I will say that in the Baha'i tradition, the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, Abdul Baha, who was a great spiritual teacher in the Baha'i world, he talks about joy. And he talks about how joy gives us wings. And he t- also talks about when you're feeling down, when you're feeling less than, when you're feeling overwhelmed, go give joy to someone else and uplift their spirits, and it will uplift your own spirit. So there's something about fostering joy, spreading joy, that it almost doesn't have to do with what you're feeling inside. Do you know what I mean? You can be feeling like crap, and you can still spread joy. And yes, it may have a secondary effect of uplifting your spirit, and that's great, but also you're being of service to someone else. So I try and frequently fail at that, that spreading joy can be, is maybe the the greatest act of service. So that's one small thing. Although it's not small. (laughs) I mean, try Mm. doing that on a regular basis, right? I think that's hard to do. And that's, that's a discipline, I think, to be committed to doing that. And it ties to something you said earlier, Rain, which I think is important, where you said, you know, to make the world a better place. Sometimes I think with social media and our information, it can feel like the task is too big for me. And so it kind of comes back to you saying like, you can start, you can spread joy and be of service to someone in your backyard, your friend, your neighbor, your own family. And that, that can be enough. That can be a really powerful force rather than, oh, I can't make an impact on a billion people. I can't change the political system tomorrow. And so I kind of don't do anything. And so I think that sounds like it's also part of the process too, is fostering hope and joy can be, like Pete said, it just made me think of that. It's a small experience, but it can be a really profound and powerful experience. Part of my pillar of a spiritual revolution has to do with, um, it's called, it's grassroots, baby. And we have to build grassroots. That's the only, that's how Jesus started. You know, here's a fisherman, here's a farmer, here's a prostitute, you know, here's a cobbler. Which is, again, ignoring or working not with the system. It's right. it's a non-system-based change. Mm-hmm. My favorite quote, and one of the sparks from my book, from Buckminster Fuller, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Right. And, you know, just a, a quick commercial here. This is the prophetic tradition of the Hebrew Bible. That's what they did. That, I mean, according to Walter Brueggemann, who's one of our favorite Old Testament theologians, but it's the prophetic imagination, imagining a world different than the oppressive world that you live in, not contributing to the oppressiveness, but having, you know, you say you don't have answers. Well, the prophets didn't have answers either. They just cast a vision for what it can look like and sort of pointed people in that direction. I think Jesus did that too. I think Jesus was trying to point people beyond the systems that we take for granted and don't even question because they're so baked into our DNA and to me, that's where joy is located. It's located in like, you know, things can be different and that gives hope and that gives joy. Now, it's hard to pull it off, but, you know, hopefully we've got a few laps around the sun to try to make it work. I talk a lot about the early Christian church because to me, um, there's no greater example of a spiritual revolution than church in its first 300 years before it became kind of institutionalized. And you spoke about Jesus. I mean, if, if you look at what Jesus actually did, and we all, we all know the stories from the Bible, but there were plenty of people wanting a revolution. There were plenty of people wanting to overthrow Rome, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There were plenty of people saying that they were a new prophet and that they had a new way and trying to gain followers. But Jesus went around serving people and healing people and feeding people and talking about love and talking about God. And he didn't play by any of those rules. He didn't do what anyone else was doing at the time. And he started a movement that is now a billion plus strong 
and transformed the world. Made a lot of mistakes along the way, but brought a hell of a lot of good as well. And when you look at those early Christian churches, and I need to remind my secular friends of this, in those first couple hundred years, for the first time in human history, the first time, guys— and I know you're you're in on this, but even you, I think, need to hear this. Like for the first time in human history, you had meetings with people of all different races and all different classes and different genders all together with sharing a common purpose, which was remembrance of the Father and remembrance of the Son. And you had slaves and black people and Roman centurions, and you had, you know, you had rabbis and you had workmen and Phoenician sailors and Samaritans, and they all gathered in those early churches to pray to the Father and remember the legacy of Jesus. And that is incredibly beautiful and incredibly revolutionary. It's one of the most revolutionary movements that's ever graced the planet because never before then had humans gathered outside of their tribe. You just didn't do it. Jews gathered with Jews, Samaritans gathered with Samaritans, Zoroastrians gathered with Zoroastrians, Roman centurions gathered with Roman centurions. They never left their specific class or strata. So that is the spark. But so how do we rekindle that in 2023? Well, let's start at the basics. Let's kind of spread love, be of service to the poor, build community, remind people of the glory of the Father and the glory of the life hereafter, and work together in bringing diverse people together in service. That's a fantastic benediction. I think Jared just converted to Christianity, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Rain, for coming. I think that's a great way to end our time just with that wonderful vision of how we can kind of recapture that grassroots momentum toward love and hope and peace. So thank you so much for taking some time and for writing Soul Boom. You guys, thanks. Uh, What a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are doing God's work. This is the goods right here. And so privileged to be a part of this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now for Quiet Time. With Pete and Jared. All righty. So here we have our little quiet time. And, you know, Jared, one thing that Rain talked about is this issue of sacred-secular divide, right? So I'm just wondering, is there a place in your life that maybe carries an enchantment, right? Something that's not necessarily a Christian thing or a spiritual thing, but something that is sacred yet mundane. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I don't do well with space, so I don't feel like I'm I'm not like a spatially aware person. My brain works in in like concepts and words. Mm -hmm. Like those are things I gravitate toward more than like a space. Because I know a lot of people will say things like being out in nature. Nature's never been the thing for me. Uh Being outside, I'm just like, eh. Even trying to cultivate it. As mm-hmm. like an enchanted space hasn't You're really worked for me. just a hollow shell of a person, though. That's basically what I'm head. saying. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, but what it is then for me is the first thing that came to mind are actually movies yeah, okay. and music. Like right. the arts are a place for me mm-hmm. that even things like going to the, for a while, I, every year on my birthday, I would go to the Philadelphia Museum of Art mm-hmm. and just spend the day by myself. Mm. And that, if okay. we're going to talk about space, yeah. probably the Philadelphia Museum of Art, but it is like movie theaters even sitting on my couch watching a movie or Mm -hmm. the Oscars every year, or there's something about that space, if you will, that feels enchanted to me. Almost like there's a ritual. A ritual. And the beauty of being able to tell stories that are bigger than us, that we can find ourselves in, those things are kind of my place of enchantment. What about you? Um, You're polar opposite. I do like walking outside. (laughs) I I just like sometimes, you know, like, an early spring day when you go outside, you just feel the warmth and the breeze. And it's like, for me, it's very life-giving. And this whole sacred secular divide, you know, Mm -hmm. of course we grew up with that. Right. But the more I think about it, that's just nonsense. You know, everything is, everything belongs, everything's good. So walking in the woods for me is, I like it. You know, I like, I like rivers and streams and things like that. I don't get much out of the beach, even though my family loves it. I just tolerate it. I watch TV usually. So, but so yeah, there, there are places like that where the divide just doesn't exist. 
you know? Yeah. In my tradition growing up, the secular sacred divide was used to sell products. Like (laughs) you can't go buy, no, don't buy, you know, rage against the machine, go buy POD, like the Christian version of the sacred, you know, sacred secular divide was a way to sell quote Christian products. Right. Rather than secular humanism. Well, speaking (laughs) of hawking Christian products, (laughs) I want to talk about uh, rain mentioning Andre Gregory and this question of cynicism. You know, he says, if you become cynical, they win. So I'd be curious what your relationship is to cynicism, particularly because I think we have, we're known a little bit for snarkiness Mm -hmm. or sarcasm, Mm -hmm. which I wonder what you think of is what's the relationship between that and cynicism? (laughs) Yeah. Cynicism is my love language, I think, but uh, it's actually not, you know, I, I think, you know, sarcasm and snarkiness, snarky is actually a harsh word to be snarky. You're actually trying to hurt somebody. That's, I think, what snarky means. We're not snarky. We can be sarcastic, you know, but cynicism is just, to me, that speaks to an utter negativity Mm -hmm. about things, right? And I think to have no hope is to be cynical, right? I don't, that's not where I am. You know, and I just, the way I express my humor is just the way, the way that it is. But those two things are not the same as far as I'm concerned. You, you, you would say you're not cynical about things like the state of the church or the future of the church. I'm not or, cynical about it. I, I mean, sometimes I'm discouraged, but other times I'm not. You know, mm-hmm, it just depends right. on what data is coming into my life at that point. So I have a very personalized view, again, because I run things through more of a filter of subjectivity than objectivity. Mm-hmm. Like even you saying no hope. I don't know. Hope for me is this objectivity word where for me, I think of cynicism as a loss of care. Okay. Like where I just don't care anymore. I'm not motivated to do anything on behalf of this cause or this mm-hmm. thing because I don't care anymore. So are you cynical? And no, I, absolutely not. Because for me, I think what's helped me is cultivate maybe, I call it like a spiritual practice of focusing on the process, not the result. To do my part, to have an integrity about what I care about and to do what I can do and realize like it's bigger than me. If, if things are going to change, I don't have it in my control or power to enact broad change in anything. I need other people's help. I need collaboration. I need to partner with other people who are doing it. So the thing I can really focus on is just what's my contribution to things that I care about. Mm-hmm. So for me, the way to stave off cynicism is just to care, to cultivate a passion right. and an interest in things that matter to me. It's and, a very activist right, right. way of looking at things, yep. which we've talked about before, yeah, right? Right, so, yeah. right. Okay, I mean, what do you think about Rain saying something that I think struck me, but that spreading joy is the greatest act of service? And, I mean, does that resonate with you, Jared? Does it resonate with Christian faith or just in general? I think so. I mean, isn't it one of the fruits of the Spirit? Yeah. And so I think that is certainly within the Christian tradition of being joyful and spreading joy. Absolutely. So yeah, I definitely think it is. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think I want to be careful though, because I feel like, again, my tradition can overuse that where you have this spiritual bypassing or this toxic positivity where it's like spreading joy. Yeah. Well, we can't come to church and be sad, even if you have sad things going on in your life and it's worth grieving over and being upset because we have to be joyful. And so I just go back to like my mega church days where it was like we're trained, we're literally training the ushers and stuff. It's like smile on faces. No one wants to be in a sad, negative place. We mm-hmm. have to bring, and that just feels fake. Right. And it doesn't leave yeah. space for real expression. So with that caveat, yes, I think it's absolutely, we can bring joy and I think we should do that. But once it gets commercialized or whatever that word is, when it gets caught up in the Christian church machine, right. I think it can become harmful. It's, it's not joy at that point. Right. It's, it's, it's manufactured joy. It's, it's the corn version. Things like that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, it does resonate with Christian faith, I think, as you're saying. And it doesn't have to be, as, you know, some might say, the joy of evangelizing people. It's just joy. You know, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis, surprised by joy. Right. And yeah. it's, I think that's a good talk. It is, it is a surprise. You don't manufacture it. Just sometimes you have a feeling of joy. And to be a vehicle to spread joy to other people is hopeful. It's hard to be cynical when there's joy. It's hard to be politically polarized if you're joyful, right? I was just going to say that I think in our culture, being joyful and bringing joy can be very subversive 
in a dialogue yes. of like, uh-huh. things are so bad and we have to start blaming people and getting to the root of why it's justified that I hate this group of people because they're bringing down mm-hmm. America. I think there is a place where joy is subversive and it's okay. Cause sometimes I think in an activist community, you can almost feel guilty for being joyful. It's like, well, mm-hmm. what's there to be joyful about? There's all these major problems in mm-hmm. the world. And the only appropriate response is like grief and anger. And so I think in both, I say both in like a polarized situation, I think in all areas, joy can be subversive in that way, yeah. in a good, good way. Right. All right. Well, before we finish, I want to ask kind of the big picture here because, you know, Rain's talking about soul boom and, you know, we're coming from a Christian tradition, but he's very much ecumenical and maybe the biggest sense of this mm-hmm. kind of interfaith. Like that's not really what's important. We need everybody coming together for a common vision. How do you feel like that? Like what would a soul boom look like for the Christian tradition? And I wrestle with that a little bit. Cause again, in my background, I have these like little voices in my head. That's like, this is all bad and negative of like syncretistic interfaith. We're losing our distinctiveness as Christians, but what does it look like for the Christian tradition to participate in what Rain's talking about? I think it looks more or less like what he talked about. You know, it's just, I don't, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think we have to Christianize a spiritual revolution. That's my, we don't have to, mm. Christ, with Christian trappings, with Christian institutions, it's just, I mean, okay, in a way, here's a way of ta- thinking about this from a Christian point of view. Wherever the revolution happens, it's a God thing. Mm-hmm. Whoever it happens from, even the most unlikely people, there are even stories in the Bible about that. People like, hey, they're not like us, Jesus. Make them stop. No, no, no. If they're not against us, they're for us. You know. So I think that uh, the tendency to want to Christianize everything and put it within our box, part of the nature of the spiritual revolution is to examine those boxes. Mm-hmm. Right? right and how can we live together and you know and i've seen um, muslim and christian activists working together side by side trying to revolutionize race relations in philadelphia for example and i'm like first of all that's joy inspiring to me and that is a soul boom as far as i'm concerned mm-hmm. right so yeah the way i think about it individually and this i've had to wrestle with over the years being around a lot of interfaith stuff and frankly just not caring anymore about any of that about like distinctives mm-hmm. and everything but for me i've thought about like christianity can be the engine it doesn't have to be the institution like yeah. i can be motivated by my christian faith but that can just be my personal motivation for why yeah. i do what i do it doesn't have to be now i have to institutionalize it and colonize it basically Mm -hmm. so that everybody else has to be motivated by Christianity that it's counterproductive. The Mm -hmm. whole point is that it can be my motivator, but you can't control other people's motivation. What does it even mean to be motivated by Christianity? Well, it's to be energized by principles and virtues and practices that are steeped in a Christian tradition. And some, but more than others. I mean, there, there, right. yeah, there, there isn't one way I think of being Christian. Right. right. That's the yeah. For me, again, it's like a, it's a self-designation. Yeah. Like that is the engine for me. That's what motivates these things. But I have a very curated mm-hmm. understanding of what I mean by that. And it's individualized to me. And another way of saying it is that Christian can just be the noun. It doesn't have to be the adjective, right? It doesn't have to be Christian, this Christian, that you just be a Christian yeah. and then whatever you do, you know, it's, we talk about it in music or art. I think when we had propaganda on yeah. a long, many Years seasons ago, yeah, ago he's yeah. like, we just be a Christian who, who's an artist. Why does not have to be Christian music? And so that's kind of how I see it, even in this space of justice and all the virtues that Rain talked about is like, those are just the virtues. And, and especially I think as, I mean, the world keeps shrinking, you know, and you can't avoid other people. You can't live, you really can't live in an isolated village. Mm-hmm. Um, no one can really, if you have an internet access, you know. So it's going to take more thinking about what does it mean to be a Christian participating in a spiritual revolution that others who aren't Christian have a lot of stake in. Right. right? And how yeah, do we well do said. that? Right. Yeah. So to me, that's not a problem. That's actually a very interesting question to ponder. But then to go do it is like the biggest change. I think that's, it's seeing, you know, the Muslim and the Christian, you know, talking about stuff mm-hmm. and, and brothers. It's like, okay, I get it. there. There's something happening here yep. that might not be happening in, you know, a church over here. All right. That's it. Thanks, folks. 
Thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. Thanks for listening to Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, The Bible for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Hunning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schaub. Uh, great question. I'm going to close my blinds because I'm getting literally blinded. <laughs> blinded by the light. It's a perfect metaphor. Mm. We, we love it. We love you too, Rain. Oh, that's yeah. so nice. Adorable. <laughs> Adorable? <laughs> I find that demeaning. How dare you? I'm leaving. Yes. <laughs> All right, this should work. Oh, gosh. I'll never hear I forgot to that. tell you, that was in his rider. He doesn't like to be called adorable. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm Gosh, sorry. Okay. So sorry. Um, um, remember when everyone was saying adorkable? Oh, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> that, was like, that was like 10 years ago or so. And yeah. I'm so glad that went away.